Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Abide in Liberty. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about Constitution Day, which is a holiday that many uh, probably don't realize passed us by a little over a week ago. And as part of that, I want to review some of the history that led up to the uh, incredible event that we celebrate on Constitution Day, and also share just how miraculous it is that this country ended up the way that it was. It ended up with the Constitution and the establishment of a free society. So stick around. We're going to start with the Declaration of Independence, which was signed on July 4th, 1776. This is the day that we all think of when we celebrate the birth of this nation. But without Constitution Day, without all of that culminating in the signing of the Constitution, then Independence Day would be utterly meaningless. Because likely, without the Constitutional Convention, we would have fallen back under British rule. We were on the verge of toppling as it was. So the fact that we came together and pulled this off is really the only reason why we celebrate Independence Day. So in this way, Constitution Day is a lot like Easter, right? It's the day, it's an important day. It's a very important day, both of them, but their predecessors tend to get a little more notoriety. So Easter is a little bit more of a downplayed holiday, but Christmas gets all the attention, which is the birth of Christ. But, you know, the day that he's resurrected, yes, we talk about it. We got the Easter bunny, but it is not the production that Christmas is. And in uh, in a very similar way, Constitution Day is, in my opinion at least, by far the more important holiday because without a constitution— Independence Day, July 4th, would have just would have been a date that had gone away in obscurity in the same way that without Christ's resurrection, Christmas, the day that he was born, would not have ever become a day that we would have ever cared to celebrate. He would have just been a normal person who was born and then later died. And that was the end. So in the Declaration of Independence, this is the document where we declared our separation. This is the divorce decree, if you will, between the American colonies in North America and Great Britain. But it was much more than that. The de- um, in the Declaration of Independence, the founders did list out all the reasons for why they were separating from Great Britain. But even more than that, they, they put forth a, a mission and a vision statement in the words that all human beings have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is where we get ideals like all men are created equal and that we are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and that it's government's job to protect those rights. Now, at the time that the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Articles of Confederation were agreed upon as the way to make the promises of the Declaration of Independence come to fruition. This is the Articles of Confederation are this country's first constitution, but it was exceptionally flawed. It was not equal to the task, at least not for any durable length of time. There was no executive power. So the laws that the Continental Congress passed under the Articles of Confederation for states to provide taxes to help fund 
the Revolutionary War were really just strongly worded suggestions. And many of the states treated them that way. Another thing that it required was that all colonies, in order to make any law or any change, all of the colonies, all of the delegates, all of the states had to agree with that change. It required complete unanimity. Now, that sounds great, but in a political body, unanimity historically turns out to be a really bad idea because when you require unanimity, it becomes invariably a tyranny of the minority. And Rhode Island, in our early history, used that to their advantage. The smallest state by far in population and landmass, but they alone could hold up any proceeding that they chose simply by withholding their approval of something. So they might agree with it, but if they want to get something else, they could hold the rest of the country hostage until they got what they wanted. And much to George Washington's chagrin, the entire Revolutionary War was fought under the Articles of Confederation, under this weak system, and it drove him nearly insane. But he refused to allow the military to take over. He was religious and and consistent in his belief and in the practice that military authority should be subject to civil authority, even if that civil authority was weak and was a hot mess. Miracle of miracles, we won the Revolutionary War under that system. And it truly is, we're going to get back to Washington here in a minute, but it truly is completely miraculous that that happened at all. But after the war, the problems that began at the beginning of the war and at the beginning of the Articles of Confederation continued to worsen. Our economy was a shambles. Uh, Soldiers that had been promised pay, there was no money to pay them. And what money there was, was inflated beyond any all recognition and all value. Um, So there were soldiers that were getting ready to to revolt or ex-soldiers that were getting ready to revolt. Um, And Great Britain and Spain and France were kind of all watching to see if we were going to topple and they were ready to swoop in and pick us back up. I mean, it was it was not a good situation to be in. And it was under with this context and with this background that George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison primarily pushed the state and all the states to send delegates to amend the Articles of Confederation to fix the root cause of all the problems that our country was facing and to, in a last-ditch effort, this was the Hail Mary pass to see if they could rescue our country before it collapsed utterly and was picked up by one of these more strong countries. So it was that every state, except I believe Rhode Island, so remember we talked about there, sent delegates to the Constitutional Convention during the miserable, hot, hot summer in Philadelphia of 1787. Delegates came from around the country. Many arrived days or weeks after it was supposed to start, so they they weren't able to even get started on time. And all of them came with the idea or with the mandate from their states that their only authority during this constitutional convention, or actually they didn't call it the constitutional convention, then during this meeting of delegates, they were only to amend the Articles of Confederation. They were under strict orders not to do anything besides that. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison, though, came with a very different idea. They knew 
And they were right that the Articles of Confederation were broken, they were not fixable, and that to fix them would require something brand new. They'd have to start from scratch. So right at the beginning, as soon as they had a quorum, enough states to get started, they did, and they unveiled the plan, which was the real plan, and that was to craft a new constitution. Start over, start from scratch. And what they did was they swore everyone to secrecy. They closed the windows, they shuttered the windows, and remember, this is in the middle of summertime. It was hot, it was humid, and you've now got dozens of delegates crammed into this room all wearing woolen suits and doing the wig thing. This was not a pleasant experience. And they they kept the, the proceeding secret, not because they thought they were doing something bad. They knew they were going to have to share what they were doing at some point, but they wanted to give the delegates freedom to voice their actual thoughts and to not be constantly reporting back to the press and getting locked into positions because they'd already spoken out loud. They knew that they were subject to those temptations and to those tendencies, and they wanted to make sure that they all felt comfortable changing their minds. Now, as you can imagine, that secrecy made many of the states and many in the United States suspicious of what they were doing. And by the time they were done... Um, it was, I think, pretty well known that they were likely doing something more than just amending the Articles of Confederation. But their plan worked. And after months of intense debate and compromise, they had put together a cohesive plan for governance that the Declaration of Independence was silent on. The Declaration of Independence said, here's where we want to go and this is what we want to be. But it didn't say anything about how to get there. The Articles of Confederation tried it, they failed, and it was time for something new. Real quick, before we move on, if you have received any benefit from these podcasts, if you've learned something and you think that others would find some benefit from this as well, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, give this video a like and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything. Um, Use whatever notification bell or thumbs up button is available to you right now. And by the way, if there's something you would like me to address or questions that you've had, please make sure and include those in the comment section so I can address those in future episodes. On September 17th, 1787, 11 years after signing the Declaration of Independence, the delegates put their names to the Constitution, and this is the day that we celebrate. Now, this isn't because this is the day that that Constitution took effect. Remember, they were only given authority to amend the Articles of Confederation. So the signatures on the Constitution on September the 17th were not binding on the nation. They they didn't have delegated authority from the people to do this, and they weren't about to try and cram it down people's throats. That would have been wrong. But they did put their names to this and their reputations to this and say with those signatures that we believe with. And so it was that the Constitution went to the different states. Each state appointed a convention where the Constitution was read and debated. And after nine months of scrutiny in each state, and after countless speeches, both for and against the Constitution, the ninth state ratified the Constitution. And at that point, the United States of America, as we know it today, was born. Now, even that, the ratification of the Constitution was not the end of it, because many states would not agree to ratify the Constitution 
without a an oath or a, a commitment or a pinky swear from the first Congress that they would go and put a Bill of Rights into the Constitution, things that the government would never be allowed to touch. Now, that, I've talked about this before, the mere fact that they would, that that our nation would accept this document on a pinky swear from politicians, no less, is truly remarkable. But that just goes to show the virtue and the integrity that these men had and that they had so abundantly that the citizens of this country felt they could trust it. And oh, if we could get back to that point. Now, it would take another three and a half years from the ratification, from that ninth state ratifying the Constitution before the Bill of Rights would be ratified. But they kept their promise, and thank goodness that those who pushed for Bill of Rights did, and that those who promised they would do it followed through, because history has shown the wisdom of specifically outlining things that the government can't touch especially in today's day and age, because those, every single one of them, it seems like, are under attack like we've never seen before. But September the 17th, 1787, none of the rest of that, the ratification nor the Bill of Rights and the prosperity that came from it would have ever happened had those delegates not come together, set aside many of them their egos and personal interests to think about the future generations of their country, not just their next election cycle, but they crafted something that they knew would stand the test of time, or at least they hoped that it would. They were looking well beyond the span of their own years. And that event in and of itself, that constitutional convention, there's a book that was written called The Miracle at Philadelphia, and it's all about the constitutional convention, but calling it a miracle is not an understatement. Not an understatement. And in fact, I would probably call it the miracles at Philadelphia because there were many miracles that happened to make that work in the first place. Now, so there's a lot here in what we've talked about that is truly miraculous and truly of incredible historical significance, but I'm going to talk about just a few of them. First of all, that there were dozens of politicians that were willing to risk political suicide to go against the orders that they had received from their states. Now, if the Constitution was well-received, They'd be fine, maybe, but if not, their careers were over. I mean, remember, the fact that the Constitution would be accepted and ratified was not a foregone conclusion. It was not a a for sure thing that to have that many people willing to come together and put it all on the line like that is truly remarkable. That's miracle number one. The second miracle is the fact that there was a thoughtful creation of government that almost never happens. Normally, governments live and die based on on whims and fancies of the day. So we saw that with the French Revolution. They had a document similar to the Declaration of Independence, and they had a revolution that many thought paralleled our own until the heads started to roll. But when things got out of control, they immediately just latched on to this strong um, military figure in Napoleon Bonaparte as their savior. There was no thoughtful deliberation. This was a knee-jerk reaction, an act of desperation just to stop the chaos and the pain that they were feeling at the time. There's only a, a couple instances that I can recall where 
somebody or a group of people sat down and deliberately crafted their form of government. There may be others, but they're incredibly rare. One of them is the implementation of the reign of the judges in the Bible. There is a similar instance in the Book of Mormon where a king, not under duress and not under force of arms or threat of rebellion, but just because he was a good guy, sat down and initiated a reign of judges similar to what had happened in the Bible. And then you have the American experiment, where it wasn't just one guy, one king, or one prophet that did this, but it was dozens of men who came together to thoughtfully craft a government. The third miracle is related to the second one, and the fa- and that was the miracle that these men not only were willing to thoughtfully and deliberately craft a new form of government that had never been tried before and that would likely lead to the the destruction of their own careers if it didn't if it wasn't well received but they they were actively shackling themselves on the off chance that this constitution was accepted ratified and put into practice the constitution and these are men that in all likelihood would become very popular through the acceptance of the Constitution, and would be at the top of the list for taking uh, leadership roles and governing roles in this new government. But despite that fact, they willingly shackled themselves with checks and balances. They knew human nature and relied on their interpretation of human nature so thoroughly that they saw in themselves the temptation to abuse power And they built protections, not only just against future government abuses or or the abuses of future leaders and politicians, but against themselves. How many politicians do you know of today that would intentionally hamstring themselves because they know themselves well enough and are humble enough to admit that even they, with all their good intentions, are corruptible if given too much power? Now, are all leaders corrupted by power? Not necessarily, but most will be. We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. They understood this. They understood this of themselves, and they put up bumpers and protections to prevent the citizens, common people like you and I, from being hurt by those in power. Now, the fourth and final miracle, the reason that these delegates were even able to come and have this meeting in the first place was because of one notable man who was clearly an exception to the rule that power corrupts. He was one of the few that 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 last bit I was just talking about didn't really seem to apply to. As he watched his soldiers starve and die winter after winter because of Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, were impotent to do anything about it. Many of us in a similar situation would feel morally justified to take military action to feed these people that we care about. It's easy to see how he could have been tempted to assume power and authority not given to him by the people's elected officials in order to save his soldiers. But he had the self-control in those most trying and distressing of circumstances to say no, to not seize power that was easily within his grasp. And because he was maybe the only man alive who would have said no to seizing that power, we didn't end up with a military dictatorship like France did with Napoleon Bonaparte. 
Instead, a few years after the end of the war, elected officials were allowed to meet and thoughtfully construct a new government. Now, for all these reasons, military leaders refusing to usurp power, even when morally justified, apparently anyways, and elected leaders risking careers, and those same leaders being humble enough to shackle themselves and protect American citizens from their own corruptibility, because of all of these, the Constitutional Convention was able to be held in the first place. Wilfred Woodruff said, those men who laid the foundation of this American government and signed the Declaration of Independence were the best spirits the God of heaven could find on the face of the earth. They were choice spirits, not wicked men. Now, as I was grabbing the text for that quote, there were comments on that webpage that were presenting counter arguments. And I want to share those with you. First was that, well, the Constitution said that blacks are three-fifths of a person and women weren't important enough to vote. So that means they were wicked men and the Constitution couldn't have been inspired by God. So before addressing the women's vote and slavery issues, I want to ask the person that made this comment or anyone who thinks like them, how lazy are you that you shake your fists and curse the heavens that the founding fathers didn't solve every single problem so that you could sit back, relax, and not have to lift a finger to improve your world in one lifetime. And remember, these lifetimes were about half the length of ours are today on average. They managed to declare independence from history's greatest superpower and win a war against that same superpower They managed to articulate a set of ideals that would inspire generations to come the world over to fight for greater freedom for all humanity. They put forward a constitution that allowed that vision to take firm root and flourish. They had the wisdom to build into that system a method to make improvements, and they did the hard work of starting that government and getting it safely on its feet. If you've ever started a book club, you understand how much work that takes. They started an entire country and its system of government. And yet you have the audacity to curse them for not fixing everything and expecting you and I to take a part in carrying that torch forward. All right, enough of that rant. That just drives me nuts when I hear that. Oh, they didn't fix every problem. I'm so sorry that they were so... Oh, anyways. All right, enough of that. So let's get back to women's vote. Yes, women should have been allowed to vote, but society at large hadn't come to that realization yet. As crazy as that seems to us today, that realization, though, would come, and through the inspired constitution that was built for change and improvement, an amendment was passed to rectify the issue. Future generations weren't lazy, and they did the hard work to fix and rectify that issue. They carried the torch forward in a good and in a big way. As for slaves being counted as three-fifths of a person, this argument is one of the most annoying, intellectually weak things I've ever heard. Do people really think that the founding fathers, as they were sitting trying to craft this form of government, said, hey, we should create a list of all of God's creations and assign them a value as a fraction of a white person, right? So we got white people at one full person. You've got slaves are three-fifths of a person. Dogs are like a tenth of a person. Um, Rats fall somewhere between four hundredths and five hundredths of a person. I mean, this is just ridiculous. They didn't do that. This was all about representation, Slave states wanted more power, so they wanted more representatives in Congress, and they wanted to use their slaves in order to bolster their numbers in in Congress 
and have more influence and be able to protect the institution of slavery and even expand it if, if possible. So people who complain that slaves should have been considered a whole person in the Constitution are weirdly arguing that the Southern states should have had more power in Congress to protect the institution of slavery and expand it if possible. The northern states didn't want slaves to count at all for representation because they wanted to starve that institution and eliminate it, if not limit it at worst. Now, aside from the intellectual problems with these arguments, they contain a few false premises. Number one is that people who lived before indoor plumbing can and should be judged on our understanding today nearly 250 years later. That is historically and intellectually lazy to do that, and it's inappropriate. As inappropriate as it would be for us to look at Albert Einstein and call him an idiot because he didn't know how to operate a smartphone, because he lived and died before they were even in existence. Fallacy number two is that the founding fathers were not perfect, and so because they weren't perfect, that means they were evil and wicked. And premise number three is that God can't use imperfect people. And of course he can. That's all he has to work with. And as Jeffrey R. Holland once said, that must be extremely frustrating for him. But he makes do with what he has. I echo the sentiment of President Woodruff that the fact that so many righteous, though imperfect men of principle and humility were all present at one place and at one time and were willing to lay it all on the line to allow future generations that they would never meet to enjoy unparalleled freedom and prosperity is nothing short of a miracle orchestrated by the God of the universe and the Father of our souls. God bless the Founding Fathers and may God bless this country if we can find it within ourselves to follow their examples and build on the incredible legacy they left for us. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.